Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Chem Combos podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Zoe Ayers. Zoe, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hi everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today. So I'm a senior scientist and I work in the water industry. I've been working in industry now for about three years. And my job is to design new technology to help keep water safe. And in my spare time, I do a lot of diversity and inclusion work. And that includes being a mental health advocate as well. That's really cool. I mean, like, I think for a lot of people, the work you do in mental health, especially on Twitter, is like garnered a lot of attention. I think especially recently, like a lot of people have kind of got on board with what you're trying to do. And I just wonder if you could kind of talk about your own personal journey of mental health and kind of how it's impacted what you're doing now in terms of like your advocation for it. Yeah, so I first experienced mental health concerns during my PhD. And it was really not until that point that I'd ever experienced mental health concerns. You know, I'd kind of heard people like casually mention mental health and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a thing, but I'm OK. It was about two years into my PhD where you know, science wasn't working, wasn't doing what we expected it to do. No one had really prepared me for science not working. I think one of the things that I'd kind of got from like undergrad and like even from my master's year was you kind of do projects that you know what the outcome is going to be. Having ran master's student projects now, I kind of know how that works. But like as a PhD student, when things weren't working, I found that really difficult. And yeah, I ended up getting more and more depressed comparing myself with the people around me. And I ended up getting diagnosed with clinical depression. And it came as a bit of a surprise to me. And I think to a lot of people around me, because, you know, I didn't really talk to people about how I was feeling. I've always been one of these people that is like, oh, I was always just getting on with stuff. And I was no longer getting on with stuff. It really reached a crisis point where I was very unwell, but I kind of kept it quiet. I did end up telling my supervisor in the end, but it was a long time before I told my supervisor. Instead of taking time out, which I maybe should have done, I didn't. And I just kind of plowed on through. So I ended up kind of experiencing firsthand what it was like to be a researcher and also be experiencing depression. And as I got better, I did, I guess, what any researcher might do when I started researching mental health, particularly around PhD students. And what I learned was that, you know, about one in two PhD students experience a mood disorder during their PhD, whether that's something like anxiety or depression. And that statistic is huge. And you think, well, why have I not been taught about this? Like, why is this not a conversation that we're having? And I realized that that was something and a conversation that I wanted to have. And that's kind of really where my mental health advocacy work started, because I was like, well, there are not a lot of resources out there talking about PhD student mental health. So I'm going to do that, you know? Yeah, I think that it didn't sound as an issue. Maybe five, 10 years ago, people would never think about it as kind of like the way how you approach it at the beginning, like, it's okay, I'm just going to go through it. And then when you started going into it, so thanks to you and people like you who actually care about it and learn from based on what they learned from their experience, they kind of started advocating for it. We started having those really serious conversations about that issue. I often still feel like there is a lot of stigma still around mental health. And, you know, Henry, you mentioned earlier a little bit about, you know, the positive side of Twitter. There's also, you know, a negative side of Twitter in the sense that someone will look at you and say, well, she's got a mental illness. She's got depression. She can't be a good chemist because she's got depression. And just how wrong that assumption is that you can't function with a mental illness and, 
you know, actually by talking about these things and making sure people have appropriate procedures in place so that if they are having mental illnesses affecting their work, then they've got help in place, but also just changing people's perspectives. So having these conversations and being like, well, actually, just because I've got depression doesn't mean I can't do the job, you know? And I think, like you said, it's often unseen. It goes unnoticed because often the person who experiences it doesn't want to appear weak. And it's like you said, you kind of had to plow on through kind of safe face but you still kind of experience that feeling every day. So it's being able to talk openly about it. I think that's what the work you do is kind of showing is that you can, you know, talk about it. The moment that I was most depressed, and I sometimes speak about this, that I was experiencing like suicidal ideation, that time point when I was most depressed, I was winning national awards for my research. And so like, if you looked on paper, you would see, you know, this person that's winning these things and doing this stuff. And then in reality, it's just a front and the kind of version of me that I felt that I had to be presenting to the world. And I've realized now just how important it is to be authentic. Um, You know, I I went on far too long ignoring the fact that self-care is really important, that actually as a chemist, I'm not a robot. I think from popular culture, we often have this kind of image of like, you know, someone tucked away in a lab up until like, I don't know, midnight every night. And that's the only way to do your research. And I'm like, well, actually, no, I need downtime. I've kind of come to the conclusion that I can be me and I can be a chemist and I can do well. It's a really good point that you brought up about miscorrelations. There's so many miscorrelations between what people look like on the paper and what they actually going through in life. I really, really wish there was a better way of evaluating. So people are more than just, you know, number of awards and publications. There's so many other things that make people unique. And because I feel like your awards would definitely stand out more if you were like, look, I've been going through so many things and I was also winning the awards. Look how strong I am as a person. So kind of talking about the camp Twitter and your recent Twitter post where you explained why you left academia got really popular. And we wanted to talk about that a little bit more. So you got a lot of feedback and a lot of people retweeted. So could you kind of summarize in a couple of sentences your feedback that you got and what were some key things that you reflected on the comments that you got? Yeah, so I guess to give people some background, I created a thread just talking a little bit about why I chose to leave academia and not stay in academia, despite the fact that I think I would have made a good professor one day. I would have probably quite liked that job and I think I could have been good at it. But I really reached a point during my postdoc that I was like, I can't sustain this. There were several reasons that I couldn't sustain this. And I think the popularity of the tweet kind of shocked me because I was just being honest And I thought that everyone kind of understood that that was just being honest. And then I realized that actually we don't talk about this stuff. There were things like not wanting to have to move country to have a good CV to then go on to have a tenured position. We often hear about you having to move to a new lab um, to increase the impact of your CV. And like my husband has got a really good job. Like there's no reason why. I would want to uproot and we've done the long distance thing. I don't really want to do that again. And then there were things like financially, it made sense to also move to industry. And often in academia, you know, I've looked around at my friends that didn't go into academia and they're buying houses and they're, you know, they're starting a family and it's like, well, actually, like I would like some money to be able to go on a nice holiday and enjoy myself or for me, for example, I pay weekly to see a therapist and I really see seeing a therapist as like a gym for your brain. Like I don't have like significant childhood trauma that, you know, you often associate with someone having a therapist. Like I think it's okay to go to a therapist for maintenance. 
So like actually being able to afford to pay for a therapist and have that sort of medical support, especially as someone with depression, I think is really important for me. So it was all kind of like prioritizing me as an individual and like the authentic me rather than trying to conform. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's that thing of vocalizing it as well. So actually like talking about it and just saying, look, this is me, take it or leave it kind of thing. Because at the end of the day, if someone doesn't like the way you tweet about something or talk about something, that's on them. It's kind of no reflection on you. And I can imagine with kind of the people that follow you and the feedback you get can often kind of be both positive and negative. And that can be probably quite difficult, I can imagine. I think it's really easy to hang on to the negative comments even when you get like a hundred times more positive so I think the human brain is really good at that so I'm trying to be a lot better at not focusing on some of the negative statements you know for example getting something with someone saying well academia was fine for me it's like well okay but it was not fine for me and that's okay you know it's okay that we've had these different experiences but what we need to do actually if you know, if we're really serious about diversity and inclusion we also have to listen to people and we have to look at different perspectives and we have to be open at looking at those perspectives and say well actually what were the barriers what would have made the difference and then you know with the reaction that I got I'm going to assume that maybe some of those barriers that I faced are not just the barriers that I faced and if that's the case, I'm a very big believer in, you know, if you can articulate what the problems are, you can create a strategy to solve them. Yeah. Like often the first step, I think, to solving a problem is admitting there is one in the first place. So right. <laughs> like, so I think, yeah, the more people can do that, the better. And I mean, yeah, I guess that comes on quite nicely to like, obviously you changed tack and went into industry in terms of if someone was in that position now saying they want to change path, whether that be into industry or academia or vice versa, kind of what three pieces of advice would you maybe give them to kind of do that? Oh, gosh, I guess the first thing I would say is that I'm definitely not like advocating for like going to industry. And that's the only option for people. Like, I think the most important thing is the culture of the place that you work. And I could have gone to an industry job and found a position that didn't work for me as well, because if my job didn't allow me to look after my mental health and have flexible working, really, like my work really puts me as a person first. So I would say when you're looking for jobs, whether it's in academia or in industry, really looking for somewhere where the culture suits you is really important. And again, there's no judgment from me. You know, If someone wants to work a lot more hours than I do, I don't have issue with that person working long hours. It's entirely up to them. It's just finding that culture that works for you. The other thing with like industry transitions is that I think we're incredibly good in academia at not believing we've got the skills to move to industry because we've been in academia so long. And actually, like a lot of us have like managed project students and we've sorted out a bits of budget. You know, we've ran events and done presentations to external stakeholders. So actually, there are all skill sets there that are translatable to industry. It's just how you sell yourself. So actually, like maybe getting someone to give like a fresh set of eyes over your CV and be like, well, actually, how does this apply to industry is really useful. Yeah, and just to reiterate your point, we're not saying here that going to academia is bad. There are so many good and bad things for both academia and industry. I just want to make sure that no one is misunderstanding us. I mean, I love academia. I feel like it's great to be a professor, and I'm sure that it's great to work in industry. I think it is often that idea of a high-walled garden. You know, if you're in that high-walled garden that is academia, then, you know, if you don't look beyond those walls, 
you often don't know what's potentially on the other side, which I guess so you kind of realised was actually better for you in both like terms of your mental health and probably the job that you do as well. I remember like when I was making the transition to industry and someone was like, well, you're not going to be able to be creative anymore. I would took that really seriously at the time. And I was like thinking about industry jobs and I was like, maybe I'll just be doing the same analysis day in, day out. And maybe I won't get to do anything innovative or creative and you know I was mulling it over and I was like well I really enjoy being creative I really enjoy doing the science I really enjoy finding new stuff like it gets me out of bed in the morning and then I moved and it was like okay well what are you going to research like what would you like to do and here's some money to do it and I'm like yes (laughs) like I don't have someone telling me the research that I want to do I get to be like well this is something that's super interesting I think it's going to be interesting for the water industry in the next 10 years so like my job really is to think about future products and think about how the water industry might change in the next 10 years or so and you usually have to be thinking about products long in advance because you have to go through discovery all the way through to checking it actually works to making a product so Like for me, I get to do all of that stuff and think about what might be coming. And it's really fun. I really like that topic of academia versus industry. I think one of the things is putting things into labels. Like, for example, I love, like I get obsessed with my research project. So I just work in terms of long number of hours. I don't care about number of hours. I care more about how much I can accomplish. So people always say that, oh, you work so many hours, you must go and become a professor. But because if you go to industry, you will have to work nine to five. You won't be able to do that because you work so much. And if you are that kind of person, then you should go here or if you're that kind of person you should follow this it's really important in my opinion also like I think an industrial company is going to take as many hours as you're going to work (laughs) we don't lock down the lab at five and say please leave one of the things I do enjoy about my job is you know I work with people in different countries and so actually some days I might start my day at 9am in the UK Some days I might start my day at midday and sometimes I offset my hours so that I'm actually catching people in different countries. So that actually is quite nice for me because like if I'm offsetting my hours and I'm starting the day at 12, then I I get up, have a leisurely morning, I do some stuff for me and then start doing my work. So I've actually really enjoyed the flexibility in that sense as well. There's a lot of respect for like, you know, well, actually Zoe can't work this night because she's doing something that's personal. And so there's that respect as well. So it's really good. That's really cool. And I think obviously the pandemic's kind of allowed that flexibility to a larger extent as well. So I think for a lot of people, that's been good. Obviously, for us doing this now, you know, it's five hours behind for Medina. So it's like, you know, that time zone difference is quite nice to be able to do that kind of thing. I think kind of talking beyond that point. So in terms of working, like you can, in both industry and academia, work as much or as little as you want to kind of accomplish what you need to. I guess that comes on to the idea of like, saying no to opportunities is often quite an issue for a lot of people. So I know myself, I'm quite bad at saying no to things. And I mean, it's always been an issue for me. And I just wondered, could you maybe talk in your own experience of that? And I was trying not to laugh while she was saying that as though like I would be some oracle on how to say no. (laughs) I am terrible at saying no to stuff, particularly given that I do my science work. I'm on a lot of committees, so I'm on the analytical division of the Royal Society of Chemistry. I'm actually part of the Analytical Chemistry Trust Fund. I'm a trustee for that. and We fund a lot of analytical research in the UK. And, you know, I could list off the number of things I do. And I'm just like, how do I find the time? And the answer is just, I have an inability to say no. 
combine that with my mental health advocacy and it's like you know sometimes I don't have enough time in the day you know what I've started to do is like almost designate slots for myself so I have like a certain number of slots and projects that I can be doing at a certain time and I say well actually if I over exceed those I have to say no and I am getting much better at saying no and I have sometimes like one of those slots can be like this is like a talk slot and maybe if you feel like you want to you can do this but like if you don't find anything to do in that then you're not going to do it and that's fine as well so just giving myself the option a little bit yeah I totally agree and I think I read somewhere I can't remember the article I think it might have been a New York Times article but basically if you say yes to something you're saying no to something else and it's often that thing of like you don't know what you're saying no to if you say yes or not so it's always that thing of being able to balance your time and make sure you do like you say take time for yourself which is often quite hard to do especially now I found working from home it's so easy to just say oh yeah I'll jump on a zoom call then another one then another one and sooner or later you have like 10 zoom calls back to front and it's just like yeah it's no good for anybody to build on that I think that's exactly what I did in my PhD and what I was saying no to was myself and I was saying no to looking after myself and I was trying to push through and you know make science work when it wasn't going to work and you know I thought that if I just put in the hours then eventually something would work and actually what I didn't realize was taking time for myself so like you know making sure that I was doing exercise making sure that I was actually eating well and doing that sort of stuff and like sometimes I hate when people say like well you need to eat well and you need to do exercise for your mental health but there's such base functions that we actually need to look after that as soon as we start letting that slip everything else just goes as well and it's like actually I can't be a good scientist anymore because I'm not looking after myself either. Yeah I think there's always a trade-off with saying yes to everything especially what I noticed in grad school is that when you get into project and you get all the other things that you can do outside your project your life gets so messy at some point that you need to kind of step back and pause and just reorganize your life. And I feel like I keep doing that every single week because I'm like, okay, I haven't cleaned the house forever. I haven't exercised forever. I need to just take one day just to, you know, recharge because it's just crazy how messy everything gets because there's so many different things. Especially during the pandemic, like living at home. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) messy, not only the house, but your brain and yourself everything around you everything is messy so I totally agree and I have to say that you know we talk about mental illness always in a negative light and to a certain extent I am an anxious person but also that means I'm absolutely hyper organized so when I have like 20 projects going on at once and that might not be an exaggeration I can do that because I am hyper organized I am keeping on top of it and Sometimes I can kind of see it as my superpower, not necessarily a bad thing. And I think that's important too. Yeah, it's kind of channeling, like you say, that kind of anxious energy you've got kind of into something productive. And, you know, if it means you can organise things in multiple folders or however you do it, then, you know, it's great. It means when you then come to look at a project later down the line, you know where to look. So one of the random questions we prepared for you is the following. So if you were sent to a desert island and could only take three possessions, what things would you take and why? I probably can't say my cat and my husband. (laughs) I think for anyone who's listened to Desert Island Discs here in the UK on Radio 4, it's often a thing about what would you take to a desert island? That's kind of where the inspiration came from. 
I didn't realise I'd reached a point in life where I might get asked what my desert island discs might be. <laughs> life is very unpredictable, you never know. <laughs> I feel like at the moment, during the pandemic, I'd probably just take a deck chair, a pina colada and a sun hat and just live the life. Like I think I could say that I'd try and get off the island, but I would be quite happily there right now. And that's, you know, I want a bit of sun. I want a bit of joy. Go for a swim. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. What would be your things, Henry, that you would take? Mm, I think my dog, for sure, or one of them. I recently got a golden Labrador, so one of them. Not sure which one. I'd probably take some alcoholic drink as well. Not sure, probably a gin and tonic. That's my go-to. And then, I don't know, yeah, probably a chair as well. Probably not my desk chair because it's like got those, you know, wheels on it. But yeah, some kind of comfy chair would be quite nice. Maybe a hammock or something would be quite nice. <laughs> I like the idea of like COVID working from home chair, just kind of like embedded in the sand. Like <laughs> it would just be so absurd. I think it's hard because I started overthinking that question. When I w thought about it first, I was like, okay, is there a Wi-Fi there? Is there a charger? Can I bring my laptop? Can I not? So there are a lot of things, that, some details that I'm not sure about, but I think my piano is for sure. But then the other things are depending on whether there are, you know, Wi-Fi and, other things because I would definitely take my laptop and maybe a coffee machine you need a big boat for the piano I'm sure <laughs> oh yeah and coffee machine for sure because I cannot survive without coffee on a desert island question is where you get electricity from would it be a solar powered coffee machine <laughs> well I mean if we were being serious about this we'd be like fishing net we'd take some tools like <laughs> I'm like pina colada <laughs> yeah <laughs> Brilliant. So, I mean, like, just touching back on the kind of Twitter side of things, a recent discussion, shall we say, kind of that you had on Twitter was kind of the whole thing around pronouns and it being a big issue in academia, within, you know, within science, I think, as a whole. Can you kind of touch on that and kind of what made you want to talk about it? I think the Royal Society of Chemistry have amazing resources around the importance of pronouns within the chemistry space, really in terms of like diversity and inclusion. I think that, you know, there's a lot of science behind the fact that having a diverse workforce leads to better solutions. And it's also the right thing to do. And so pronouns are one of these things where it means that you know, people can feel included, particularly members of like the trans community, for example. And I think it's so important that we make chemistry as inclusive as possible. So I think displaying pronouns is a very simple way to hopefully make some individuals feel more safe and more comfortable within the chemistry space so yeah no I agree and I think we've seen especially now like more and more people using them just as kind of a show to say look you know it's something that everyone can kind of use and be a part of I think yeah it just goes to show kind of the like you say the diversity of chemistry as a science and kind of beyond that just being able to again be more open about who you are as a person and kind of not being afraid to do that I think probably a lot of people don't always feel comfortable. So it's just being able to destigmatize that kind of issue. Similarly with mental health, I think that's why it's great the work you're doing to kind of work towards that. I think that, you know, we've got to be inclusive for everyone, right? And I think having a mental illness has made me appreciate that, you know, maybe spaces aren't as inclusive for people with mental illnesses as I think they could be. And I think when you start to realize that maybe you're in a minoritized group for something, one of the things that you can do, I guess this kind of harks back to what we were talking about at the start, is actually listen to other people and listen to what is going to improve things for them. 
I think the Royal Society of Chemistry is doing a fabulous job of actually making sure that we are improving in inclusion and diversity. And the American Chemical Society as well recently invited me to do a mental health talk for them as part of their series. And they've done a webinar series that have featured LGBTQ plus scientists. They've also done talks about being black in chemistry. So really talking about inclusion and diversity. And I think it's really great to see some of these bigger institutions really putting it at the fore. One of the other things that we find very interesting that you started is this 100 Voices Challenge. And we were wondering whether you could talk about what inspired you to start that and what are some insights that you found from people. So the 100 Voices Project is just an online Twitter campaign that I started last year. I create banners and I ask people to describe their mental health journey. And they talk a little bit about the science that they do as well. And then they also give a little bit of advice to someone else about how to manage your mental health. And I really want to start it because I know that there are so many individuals with mental illness within the research community, but we don't often talk about it. And so it provided a really nice, simple way to get people talking about it and provide some inspiration for other people. I know people have come forward to be part of the 100 Voices Project, having seen other people being part of the 100 Voices Project. I think that, you know, when I started it, I asked my friend, like, should I make it 10 voices? How many am I going to get? You know, like, who's going to come forward and talk about this? And I was absolutely inundated. And it was like, okay, well, I've got 100. And now I'm in the next like 200 of the 100 Voices campaign. And I've already got 300 people waiting in the background to be part of the project. And you think, well, actually, if I think back to my experience during my PhD, when I was experiencing mental illness, I literally thought I was the only person. And if I can show other people that they're not alone, and that not only can you have a mental illness, but you can thrive and you can be a fantastic chemist, or, you know, a fantastic scientist or a fantastic researcher, then we should absolutely be doing that. Totally. I think the more people that kind of come and do that, I think the better, because it's only going to kind of increase the awareness of it. But given how big of an issue it is, it's only going to kind of proliferate out. So I think that's really good. And always amazes me how everyone's experience is different and so unique. And it's just amazing. And will hopefully make other people think that they're not alone and it will hopefully make them feel better. So I think another project you've kind of recently been involved in, which is like really, really cool, is the Voice Academia podcast. I think that you started with, I believe it's Emily King. Again, that's a really, really good avenue to kind of talk about, obviously, issues surrounding mental health and kind of get them out in the open. I think it was an episode recently by, I think it was a two-piece by Daniel Ranson, and he talked about his experience of mental health, and I think it was quite eye-opening. Again, somebody who's very, you know, open on Twitter and things about his experience with it, but it's that thing of, if you don't know somebody that personally, then you wouldn't know about it. And just hearing about it in that kind of open way, I think is great. And I think the way you're doing that with the podcast is great. I don't know if you want to talk more about it. Emily's amazing. She's been doing a really good job with the podcast. You know, we started Voices of Academia as a blog and it's between me and Dr. Marissa Edwards. And then the team has kind of expanded as well. So there's a whole team of us now that are working on Voices of Academia. And you know, we have the blog where people can expand on their stories because one of the things that we really wanted to focus on was the fact that you know we hear about these statistics around people's mental health within academia, but what we don't often get is the nuance. So, you know, one person's experience of imposter syndrome can be very different to someone else's or, you know, someone could experience grief or loss during their life as a researcher. And again, that experience of loss can be very different. And so the idea of Voices of Academia is to really capture those experiences and capture 
a little bit more than people just being a statistic. And the podcast has kind of come from there that again, like with the 100 Voices campaign, like it's a very short kind of I don't know, little blip in the ocean in terms of exploring someone's mental health journey. So the Voices of Academia is a way to explore that further. And then the podcast is a way to explore that even further. And, you know, you get so much more information from having a conversation. So Totally. And I think the way you've done it, I like the format where it's kind of every month is a particular person having it split into two kind of parts is quite good because you can kind of sit and listen, tune out, and then it's kind of just nice to look forward to. So I think that's a really good format. Certainly something that more and more people should try and, you know, do. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. So another thing that we were wondering, so when life gets stressful, what are some ways that you use to relieve it? So I'm terrible for being like I say like 90% stress at all times but I like to go swimming and one of the things in the pandemic is that I've not been able to go swimming so the swimming pools have just opened back up so I have been going swimming and it is absolutely amazing. I've just bought myself a wetsuit as well so I can go wild swimming in the UK which is something that I was doing last year when the swimming pools were shut so I've quite enjoyed that. I really like going on walks. I also really like baking. Actually I can't see now but I've got way too much buttercream down the front of me because I was just baking a cake before coming on the podcast now at least I enjoy doing things where I don't have to be good at them and I think I've been really bad in my academic career of always only doing things if I'm good at them and so actually with my hobbies and stuff like I try and do things and actually like the cake that I've baked for my friend like I'm probably just gonna laugh whilst I present it to her because it's not a great cake but hopefully she's going to appreciate I don't know the energy that's gone into it so are we going to see Dr Zoe Ayres on Bake Off next year or uh, absolutely not no one needs that <laughs> in their life but you know like I don't have to be good at everything and I think that's something that as an adult I think I've come to you way late in life that actually it's okay to just be a bit crap at stuff I always like to think that the effort is the key. So I was never good at, for example, linear algebra, but then I took the class and my professor, he would be like, oh, you're my favorite student. I was like, but why? I'm really bad at it. Like I get just C's and then he would be like, no, because you try and you come to every office hour and you know, those people that get hundred percent there and maybe not trying as much. So I think the effort is the key thing. I'll make sure to tell my friend that tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's the thought that counts always, I think. No, I mean, for me, like, especially in the pandemic, there's two things I've kind of learned to kind of love is kind of languages. So at school, I kind of always enjoyed languages and I've kind of used Duolingo to kind of learn Italian, which has been quite fun. Just kind of a nice thing to do. And also cooking, obviously the chemistry cook hashtag, shout out to LC, I guess. Kind of obviously that's kind of grown and being able to say, talk about cooking and things, stuff beyond just your work in the Twitter space is quite good. That's kind of been something I've kind of focused on. I recently bought a stress ball as well. I find this is really good to kind of just literally, if you're feeling stressed, just kind of give this a squeeze and it does help, I find, quite a bit. So, I mean, we got a philosophical question for you and we kind of like to end on this always. It's kind of like, if you were given the power to change one thing in academia right now, what would it be? It would be how we measure success. I'm not saying we do away with publications and we don't factor those in, but I think that we don't give enough stock to people doing pastoral care. You know, if you get someone through 
their research program and you've helped them then they're going to go on and do more research so actually what you're doing is actually like expanding your reach because you've managed to get someone through their research program so I really do think there needs to be more recognition for people doing work and supporting students whether they're from underrepresented groups or whether they're experiencing mental illness so yeah I would really just change how we measure success and make sure that actually we're putting people before publications. No I totally agree I think it's important as well to not measure your success against that of someone else so I think often could be the case especially in academia is that you'll measure your success against that of your PI for example in terms of how many grants they're getting and it's just one it's unrealistic to do so and two it's just going to get you down because you're not going to feel fulfilled in the work you do so I think it's certainly that thing of kind of detaching your success from either your work or kind of publications that kind of thing would you kind of agree on that do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think we so often associate our worth with the job that we do. And I think we bring so much more value than the job that we do. And we have to find that in ourselves. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer to the question that we asked. It's very easy to forget that you should not compare yourself to others, especially in grad school. And it's very hard, both for you and for supervisors, I could imagine it's very hard, especially both students are the same year. But I think there's always that saying that I always hate to hear, but I do try to learn from that statement is that you can only compare to yourself and your past, not to other people. Whenever I start comparing myself to someone, I always like, okay, don't think about them. Think about Medina in like 2017 or 18 or something like that and you have to learn how to do it it's definitely a learning curve but it does make it less stressful definitely because comparing to other people never works it sounds like a really good approach I think challenging our inner dialogue is probably really really important for a lot of things including things like imposter syndrome so I think just touching on kind of the imposter syndrome, the work that I think Dr. Mark Reed's doing in that area has been really good. And I know he's done a questionnaire where you can kind of do it. And I remember I did it and I think mine was pretty high. I want to say like 95. (laughs) I was 95 as well. Like I was just like, I don't know what to do with this information. Mark Reed's work is great. I was just like, well, I know I have imposter syndrome (laughs) now. Now I've got a metric for that as well. So I think it's really funny, but I think obviously like similar to your mental health research and your work, it's obviously really important. I think the more people know about it, the better. So I think the fact that Twitter can reach so many people is great. And I think more people should try and use the platform if you can, even just to make yourself aware of kind of what's out there in terms of that kind of work. I always think with my work, if I can find one person through Twitter that was in the similar situation that I was in during my PhD, then that's enough. I'm not there for anyone else. I'm there for that person. So, so I mean, Zoe, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? So you can find me on Twitter. It's my name. So ZJ Ayres, so it's A-Y-R-E-S. Or like my website is www.zjairs.com. And I've got a message section through the website. You can DM me on Twitter and yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I think we both agree. I think it's been a really, really good episode. I think we've really enjoyed what we've talked about. And obviously we've covered a lot of topics. And I think for a lot of people, the work you do is going to continue to be beneficial, I think, going forward. So I think, I guess, just thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's brilliant. So Thank you very much for having me on. And I think I'm probably now got a pina colada in my head. So that might be where I'm (laughs) off to next. (laughs) Sounds good. I think I'll make a gin and tonic myself. Oh, well, thank you for listening, everybody. If you want to catch us on Twitter, follow us over at Ken Combos Pod. And yeah, have a great day. See ya. Bye.